Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Rachel Stewart. I'm a PhD researcher at the University of Kent. This is another episode for the Sex, Sex Work and Sexualities channel of the New Book Network. And I'm here to talk to Tom Barker about his amazing book that I've been reading all weekend, The The Aggressors in Blue. So, Tom, can you tell us who you are and what your, your expertise is, please? All right, well, I got a varied background. I'm a former police officer, police academy instructor. I'm an expert witness in both for and against police officers. But I'd, I'd like to tell you how this book developed. I've been uh, uh, researching police misconduct and crime since the 1970s. In fact, I wrote the first uh, real book on corruption and police sexual misconduct. But about uh, 20 years ago, I decided to do a series of books on bad cops. So I started collecting material. And if you could, we can't, but you could, if you could pound it, uh, you know, see my office, it's just stacked full of various, uh, you know, types of police crime or bad cops. So, This book, Aggressors in Blue, was the first of a series of books on bad cops. And uh, the second one that came out was on police-caused homicides, which like we're going through right now, you know, on uh, with it started in 2014 with Michael Brown shooting. And then the third book, which is I'm writing right now, is on... uh, the Dark Side of Policing deals with liars. So the third book, like I was saying, is on uh, uh, police liars, criminal uh, cops, and gang police gangsters. But so I started out aggressors in blue. I guess uh, when I when I was a police officer, it was easy to see that uh, you know sexual misconduct was just a neutralized or a naturalized form of police misconduct. Police began to feel as if, you know, they could uh, take advantage of anyone that was vulnerable, and they did. So that's why I started, you know, writing that, and I put it together, and and all I can say is here it is, you know, and I tried to, I tried to put in a typology of, uh, uh, things you know that the, the police do. Okay, okay. Um, your um, your book, uh, sort of your book. Your book is amazing, by the way. Okay, and I, I was I've, like, I've read it over the weekend, like I mentioned. Um, your book in the introduction, it it talks about something called uh, mala prohibita. Can you give us an, an overview of why this is an issue in terms of policing? All right, mala prohibita. 
There are two forms of crimes, mala in se and mala prohibitive. Mala in se are crimes that are inherently, you know, criminal, like incest or something like that, murder, robbery. We know they're bad. Mala prohibitive crimes are those that the state says are bad. And that's where you get the real problems with, you know, like police sexual misconduct, and especially with sex workers. Once you, you know, there's nothing inherently evil about sex workers, but we have, you know, we, we as a society in many countries have outlawed them. And we outlawed them that we created a an opportunity for the police as enforcers of those laws to take advantage of the women and the men that are involved in that traffic. So that's where that power prohibitor comes from. So so there's sort of like that that sort of uh, marginalization of an activity that's not inherently harmful in itself creates uh, an opportunity for abuse by police who want to do that. Well, same thing with drugs. There's nothing inherently wrong with drugs, but we've you know we we've had a war on drugs and we lost that war, and uh, and uh, you know looked like you know like smoking marijuana. You know, I remember when they first uh, made the laws you know about smoking marijuana, and they had it was a a mandatory year in the penitentiary. Now, I would when I stopped somebody, some kid that had marijuana on him. I took his marijuana off of him and threw it down the sewer. I wasn't going to send him to the penitentiary for a year. And the same thing, you know, I worked vice for a while. I wasn't very good at it. But I kept getting embarrassed. So, you know, I couldn't. <laughs> and, and not only that, but, I, you know, I couldn't see anything wrong with, uh, you know, vice operators, you know, if they you know, if they did it under safe circumstances, but when you made it against the law, it wasn't safe circumstances. So I didn't like doing it, and it showed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so tell us what the remit of the book is. Give a, give an overview of what the book is. I'm going to ask you some more probing questions in a minute, but just for the, for the listener, what's the overview? Well, the overview is to show that uh, sexual misconduct is part of the police occupational crime. The police officers with the inclination to have sex on a repeated basis with vulnerable persons has plenty of opportunity because he is a police officer or she is a police officer. We now got women involved in it too because they are police officers, I should say. They have all this opportunity and it's a low-risk situation. There's no guardians at it. You know, most police departments just push it under the rug. They don't, they, they don't take any action. And this could lead to some real serious crimes. And, you know, one of the things that I, I developed in that book and surprised me is the number of uh, police serial killers that I've discovered. And also to find out that there are a lot of cops that have been involved in rape plus murder. In other words, they rape a woman and then she, or in one case, a police officer had a homosexual relationship with a man 
and the man was threatening to, you know, uh, undercut or out him and tell, and he killed him. So here you you get the outgrowth of a murder from what was a original sexual encounter. So what um what jurisdictions does it cover? Is is it the U.S. the U.K. Is it just these two countries, or is it like a broader remit? Oh, it's all you know. And I and what there in the chapter I went through sex workers, even in Russia, there's a problem with the sexual misconduct with sex workers. Anywhere where you have have it criminalized, you're going to find out that there's going to be some police officer that's going to take advantage of the opportunities. And one of the things that surprised me about when I was got involved in this and was in the UK. It is a major problem in the United Kingdom, and I didn't expect that. And if I may just make a personal comment, I'll tell you why I found that out. Because one of the reviewers of my original book said I should confine my conversation to the United States where it was a problem and not to the United Kingdom where it wasn't. And that made me mad. So I went back and started researching the United Kingdom, and I found out it was a problem there too. And so that's why I put it in the book. But it's a problem in all countries. You know, one of the things that I've said in a lot of my publications, we in the United States, the criminologists in the United States, are very ethnocentric. We think that, you know, we got the best, it only happens here, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you know, but it, that's not true. Other Police departments have the same problems we do. Some of them deal with it better than we do. And I put in the United Kingdom deals with a lot of problems better than we do. But this sexual misconduct can take place in any society that outlaws or criminalizes sex between willing participants, and especially sex workers. Yeah, and that's really interesting because you never hear that in the discussion, do you? When you when we're hearing those discussions about whether sex work should be criminalized or increasingly criminalized, we know, you know, the focus is always on the sort of like the risks that are supposedly posed by the customer to to the to the sex worker or like third parties pimps or anything like that. But we never ever see a discussion about how the criminal justice system can actually be harming to the sex workers. And in fact, to to an extent, there's almost a kind of collaboration with uh, sort of police and the criminal justice system. You know, I've read a few papers recently who where the 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 academics writing it are suggesting that that actually um, sex uh, sort of sex uh, attacks on sex workers should be looked at as hate crimes. So then where does that put the police if the if attacks on sex sex workers are, are hate crimes, you know, you know that that's that that supposition that somehow the the police are somehow kind of benevolent and can be trusted, I think is like at best naive. Well, at you best. know, I discount this idea of a hate crime. Most crimes are hate crimes, so you know, don't criminalize it. You know, criminalize it because it has this hate involved. And but I, of the police, you know, my, there are a lot of police officers, and I've met them through the years, that consider themselves avenging angels. They're God's servant on this earth, and if they're 
to eliminate sin. And one of the eliminations of sin is those sex workers and those uh, homosexuals, gay and lesbians. You know, it's it's their they feel it's their job to to be the person that delivers punishment on earth. And wow, that's scary as hell. <laughs> <laughs> That's serious, scary as hell if you're in a cell. <laughs> in fact, I used, to, I used to say that the worst and the most abusive cops that I ever met were those that were part-time preachers off, off the job. Wow. Because of the attitude that they had. You know, wow. And I've seen some bad examples. Please. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, this, uh, like I said, this first book, The Aggressors in Blue, that, uh, like I said, I, I came out with the first article that I had back in the 70s was dealing with sex. And at that time, I, I, I thought it was more of a problem of consensual sex. But, uh, you know, I'm of the opinion, and I say it in the book, and I've said it, you know, in the last maybe 15, 20 years, Police officers don't have consensual sex with others because they're, the power is not the same. And you come on a, an aggress somebody that's trying to have sex with you, and he carries all those weapons of destruction. You're not on equal basis with him. I don't see no. any consent there. No, it's true. It's true. In your book, you your book frequently like sort of comes back to these a, f a couple of ideas that I picked up, and one of them was the idea of a, a pool of lo low risk, vulnerable targets. Can you like you've mentioned uh, sex workers? Are there other sort of like targets that you sort of came across when you were you were writing the book? Oh yeah, the targets. For example, uh, the target in what we've got right now in this country. And I'm sure that does immigrants. You know the, the most of the sex, uh, you know, coercive sex now is habit happening along the, the border as uh, customs and border patrol agents have sex with the immigrants coming across. And you know, we talked about you know you see in the newspapers about the females coming in, you know illegal aliens, as they call them, coming, you know, across Mexico and out of the Central America and being uh, trafficked in sex and having a, you know, consent, unconsent, or consensual sex along the way. And they get to the border, the Customs and Border Patrol agents, they're vulnerable populations because who are they going to report it to? I mean, if they do report it, they're going to, not going to be, uh, or they'll be deported. So that's, you know, there's a vulnerable population. And uh, one of the surprising things to me is the number of uh, police sexual predators of children. I mean, you know, that's not pedophiles in my opinion. Pedophiles are a, a psychological disorder. But these guys... And, and gals are engaging with, in sex with people that can't really give consent. And I also ran across a small number of police sexual predators 
that were charged with incest. I mean, so that there's a, oh, a whole, you know, anybody that's in this country illegal is a member of a vulnerable population. And I cite cases on cases, and particularly from here in Texas, where Texas has a large population of vulnerable immigrants who give sex to, con, quote, consexual sex to a police officer because, you know, he says, if you don't, I'm going to deport you. In fact, I, I, I got a case in there, too, about a guy that was a, had come to this country as a legal uh, immigrant, got citizenship, and he was uh, engaging in non-consensual sex rape of other immigrants when he was here. So, I mean, wow. it's, so, it's one of the... So the power attracts the power hungry. Oh, yeah, power. You know, police are powerful. You know, you think not only can they take away your liberty, they can take away your life. So, you know, yeah, there's no... There's no consensual sex in between a vulnerable victim and a police officer. That's just so, you know. So your um your book discusses ten different typologies of the types of sexual offences that police officers seem to enjoy or specialise in. Because you never think about that. You never think about the enjoyment they get from this. You know, but they do, don't they? You, uh, can you can you give us an overview of of how the book discusses these and what they are? Well, what I go through is you know the ten types. First, I try to break it out as you know the differences between the acts. All the acts are different, and in many of the acts, the victims are different, and in many of the acts, have you know strong support within the organization, and some don't. So, you know, I take the 10 different patterns and develop them along that line, trying to show why they these particular ones occur and what the difference between, let's say, type 3 is and type 4 is, and, uh, and show you that, uh, you know, the police peer group, the occupational peer group, makes a decision, you know, some things are all right. Like it's it's all right to, quote, rape a sex worker, but it's not all right to rape a child, okay? So, and also one of the things that we've had real problems with in this country is once we started putting the police in schools, you know, the school research, resource officers, etc., that we put the victims, as I said, we put the fox in the hen house. We put the victims together with the person that had the inclination to engage in it. So you have to, that's why I divided it out into 10 different patterns or types to show that they, and also to show, you know, people, they'll come up with, you know, a silver bullet to stop it. And my idea is there's no silver bullet to stop all forms of it, you have to deal with it, you know, make the laws against it, enforce the laws against it. And the problem we have in this country, which you don't have in the United Kingdom because of your barred list, 
is that police officers in this country can be caught in a, you know, improper sexual uh, relationship with a, a vulnerable victim, and they get, they let him resign rather than prosecute him, and he goes to another department. That's gypsy cops, and we don't have a national decertification system like the UK does. And I put in the book, you know, the barred list. You can you can move from one department to the other within some states or from one state to the other after you have been convicted or have been alleged but not convicted of a uh, sex crime. And that's a real problem in the United States. And that's assuming that you get convicted, isn't it? It's assuming that, you know, that there's not a sort of like a kind of um, a more informal kind of edging out of someone. That's right. See, the police organizations, they don't want the scandal. Yeah. And they'll give you out all right, you just keep your mouth shut and get the hell out of here and we'll forget about it. And they go to another department. And then when if if the other department a lot of times won't even call the vet, you know. But if they call, oh he was a good guy, they don't want to wash their dirty linen either. So it's a it is a gypsy cops moving or as I tried to as I Pointed out in the book, call it passing the trash. Police departments in the United States pass the trash onto other police departments. Yeah, so then uh, you, you could follow the victim, the, the trail of victims behind them, presumably. That's so, right, I, could you give us like, sorry? Could you give us an idea of some of the the sort of typologies, the the, the kind of crimes that the sex crimes that the um, police commit? The worst are those of. Uh, you know, serial killers, we've had at least four or five. In fact, the last serial sex killer we had in the United States was a Customs and Border Patrol agent. That's four years ago. So we've had, I've identified at least four or five. And that's the worst. And then following the next are those that rape women and then murder them to keep them, uh, you know, disclosing it. And then, then you got, uh, you know, what I call the you know, betrayal of trust. A lot of people call the police, and the police come. They come back. In fact, I, I made a, a big case of it. One woman called the police because she was being harassed by her neighbors, and they were throwing uh, bricks in her window. And she called the police, and she came to and the police officer raped her. And so that's betrayal of trust. So some, you know are called to the scene and and raped, and some find vulnerable victims. They shake down their victims for sex. They pull over a woman for a traffic violation or a man, you know, in the case for a traffic violation. And, uh, you know, the first thing out of their mouth is, well, we can work this out. And working this out is, quote, consensual sex. And it is not consensual. That's a shakedown for sex. And uh, and then then I went through a long story about showing how consensual sex is not necessarily consensual sex. You know, those so through all the patterns, I tried to show that there there are different reasons why police officers do it. Now, and some of them, you know, engage in wide ranges of sexual activities, and uh, you know. 
There are serial rapists that police officers. Did you get any indication, like, when you were doing research about, like, how how soon into a career, like, this type of behaviour starts? I mean, do they get comfortable and then sort of start kind of like their behaviour kind of um, sort of getting increasingly worse or do they start quite stra- straight away? I mean, do they, you know, is there a kind of almost almost a kind of a, a, a subculture of bad cops that, that kind of associate? Well, not really. It depends on which ones you're talking about. You know, some, and that's the sad part about it, some of these have are well known in the departments. And, it, you know, they, they're known as skirt chasers in the department. They know that. And uh, if there's anything that becomes comfortable, it's the idea is, you know, if it's lower, if you engage in it and you get away with it, you're more likely to continue it. Yeah. And, and rather than, you know, when they get a reputation in this, one of the things that I try to tell people, you got to look like bad cops. A lot of bad cops are heroes and hard workers. And they got good records. And the police love them. But they got the good, you know, like a lot of cops write a lot of tickets. But the reason is, he may be searching for victims. And, you know, when you, you know, if you find somebody writing a lot of tickets, I would suggest that the agency go back, see who he's writing them to, who he is stopping, you know, and see if there is some kind of relationship between, say, the sex of the vic- of the person he's stopping. And you, you can find that out in a lot of ways. So I get the impression that what you're saying is that that actually this kind of we shouldn't be shocked that when we put people in a position of power that they they behave in a corrupt way that that's not shocking but what's shocking is that we don't discuss it and we don't acknowledge it and the way we that we heard we don't acknowledge that it's an occupational crime that all police agencies engage in and once we acknowledge that we can deal with it, you know, but we, you know, the first thing you say, oh, it's just a rotten apple. But, you know, I, one of the things I had, I had a guy tell me one time, well, it's just a minority of police officers that do it. I said, what, how much of a minority? He said, probably 5%. Okay. 700,000 police officers in the United States. 5% of that is, 35,000 police officers. Now, you don't think it's a problem that we got 35,000 police officers out here who might be engaging in, you know, non-consensual sex? Don't tell me it's a minority. A minority, and it's not a minority of the person that, uh, you know, is the victim of their families. Yeah, so, yeah. that's that. Let's, and I, let's take it I, serious I, and act that way. Yeah, and I think it also in the book as well, you kind of talk about, you don't just talk, I mean, you focus on, on police work, yeah, but you, you mention the wider carceral system and that this is rife, not just with the police, but in, in you know, prisons and, you know, other kind of federal sort of um, uh, sort of agencies that, that indulge in this type of criminal behaviour. Well... Rachel, don't get mad at me now because I'm going to make a statement that some 
I've made before. I was surprised when I got into uh, college teaching at the number of instances of sexual misconduct, which was taking place between college professors and their students, and particularly at the PhD level and the master's level. I was surprised at that. But I, and I mentioned that to my major professor, and he knew I was a you know, former cop and everything. He said, "If you get, if you make a, if you make a study of that, you'll never get another teaching job." <laughs> wow, I could speak forever about the, the the neoliberal like university system, and I will never get a job. And it's hard enough to get one as it is. So, and um, so you describe sexual misconduct as a low-risk behavior. Can you tell us about that? Well, in many departments, like I said, it's accepted behavior as long as you don't, as you just use it, you know, sex workers, people that you stop, you know, you know, shake down for sex, you know, woman's getting something, you're getting something. That's As long as you do that. But if you engage in rape, they say if you engage in rape, we don't have it. And I keep telling them, that's right, too. You know, that's not consensual. That's right. So, uh, but they could, you know, once they start defining, you know, as no risk or neutralized deviance. And I'll just give you another example. I'm working right now on an article on fixing tickets. Now, and I, the earliest uh scholarly article that I found on ticket fixing was 1939 where they said it it's an accepted behavior everybody does it everybody does it all the police do it but it's against the law and it, you know this is like sexual misconduct the same way everybody does it but as long as you just you know as you're not hurting anybody if you don't do a, a child or you don't do a rape you know there's nothing wrong with it. If you just stop a woman and you work out something, there's nothing wrong with that. And there are a lot of police peer groups that say, oh, that's perfectly all right. Or if you a sex worker, well, you know, as I put in the book, a lot of police peer groups say they're unrapeable. You can't rape a sex worker. But that's not true. Rape is when it's, you know, coercion. And they say, well, if you're a sex worker... There's no coercion. Yes, there is. You know, so that, that's what I mean there. Because the whole point of sex work is to sell sex, isn't it? The sale of something yeah. is, is consensual by virtue of your exchanging money for a service. You know, so so that, that sort of like argument is just null and void. But also as well, I just think that we really like what a trick really gets, excuse my pun, but a trick really gets missed because uh like it's almost like there's a herding of vulnerable populations towards an inherently um co- sort of corrupting uh sort of um system of of policing i mean it's you know the the whole the, the debates around like sort of um the criminal criminalization of mig- migrants the criminalization of sex workers you know we're we're not just criminalizing these people we're actually increasing their vulnerability by the way that we by the way we police them, and there's no acknowledgement of that. That's that's the whole point. That's what I was trying to make. What you criminalize, and like a sex worker, what do you think? 
they consider now that's just an occupational hazard, you know. Of course, I have to give it up to the police officer because if I don't, he's going to put me in jail and I can't do my job. It's just part of my the hazard that I face. So we criminalize it, you create the opportunity, and you bring it about. And it's the same thing with drugs, you know. You criminalize it. Look at the problem. You know, like I said, I'm living here in Texas. Good God, there's enough drugs flowing across the border, you know, from down here. And it's because people in this country are taking it. It's criminalized. And, uh, you know, one of the points I made in another book, the cartels, the Mexican cartels that are doing drugs here, they were, they're bringing in booze during Prohibition. You know, so they've always supplied whatever the U.S. has criminalized. And you'll always find that somebody will do that. You make it against the law. And as a policeman told me, and I, I don't want to get to, too far in this, but a policeman told me, man, I don't understand this sense that people are going to drink. People are going to take drugs and they're going to fuck. And he said, if you make it against the law, they're still going to do it. And he's right. You're not going right. to stop it. I suppose it's the criminalization of, of people, though, isn't it? This is what we're really talking about, especially when you're talking about sex work. I mean, because it, the, the whole t- the whole t- discussion around trafficking is really a kind of almost, for my, my way of thinking, it's almost uh, like a subterfuge to distract from actually what you're talking about is a criminalization of sex work. You know, sex work gets conflated with trafficking and then we're, we're protecting people, you know. And and I just, it just shocks me that people can justify to themselves this exposing people to a criminal justice system that is neither just and is criminal, you know. You know one of the funny things that I'll tell you, it's a funny story. Years ago, my wife and I used to, before the pandemic, we used to go to Vegas quite frequently. And one time I wanted to go out to, you know, I was interested in because, you know, outside of, uh, in Clark County, that's where Las Vegas is. It's, uh, prostitution is illegal. But if you pick up the, the phone book and, you know, it's about 60 pages in the back on escorts. But anyway, you know, in in some areas of uh, Nevada, it's legal. So I was talking to a prostitute out there. And, you know, I interview bad cops, prostitutes, and everybody. And I was talking to a prostitute, and she said she had a friend that worked in one of the brothels, illegal brothels. So I told her, well, I'd like to go and just watch it, you know, just sit in there and watch the interactions between the people and the prostitutes. And I thought that would be, you know, a great study that I could write up. My wife nixed that. But I would love to do that, to, you know, to just to go see. If, although it's illegal all over Nevada except certain places, I would like to see how they handled it in those places. But I'm going to have to, my wife's not going to let me do it. <laughs> and that would be quite an interesting, like, you know, like, because we tend to, we tend to study sex work from either a kind of uh, the viewpoint of a sex worker or the viewpoint of someone 
who associates with sex workers, so like activists or, you know, sort of like sort of sex working friendly um, academics or whatever. But actually, um, I, that, that role of a customer is quite interesting as well to research from, you know, because I've, I've interviewed people, you know, I, I was interviewing some women in a sauna because um, in England we have like saunas that are really brothels. And I was interviewing some women in the sun, and it was so interesting to see how the dynamic changes every time a man comes in, you know, like totally, totally changes. But it would be really interesting to 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 see um, to see what the discussion is like, say, between a customer and or or, or a sort of potential customer and and a, and a sex worker. It would be quite, you know, it'd be quite interesting. That's what I thought too. One of the things I'd like to say, and this goes back to the book. I've been, my research has been more qualitative, and I come from the Chicago school. I'm not much interested in statistics. And I always said, in my first sociology course, I, I you know, I'd never seen 4.5 people or 1.3 group, you know. So I want, I, you know, my idea is I want to know what the people are, what they're like. And that's what I wrote that book and the other books that I write. I write about people not statistics. Hmm. And I give examples of what police officers do. So you can relate to that. And I still, maybe I, you know, maybe sometime I'll, uh, I'll talk my wife in and we'll go back out there. And, yeah. <laughs> Good luck with that one. <laughs> we, um, I'm actually involved. I've been involved for the last couple of years with the research with the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and it's the biggest of its kind in England. And we interview sex workers in a variety of different um, settings about their experiences of policing and how it impacts their health. Okay, so we had to have that health diet, that health aspect to get the funding. Um, I think we ended up interviewing over 200 and something. So that's a fairly decent quality. Uh, quantity. Oh, yeah, that's good. And what we found was that that policing inherently increased vulnerability to violence. Okay. okay. Not just from customers. There was increased level of violence from, from like, sort of people on the street, increased level of violence from, you know, sort of intimate partners, but also from the police themselves. You know, in this country, I think it was, I think in the the previous um, six months, the just over 100 women that we'd interviewed on the road, on the street, I think 11% of them had experienced physical violence at the hands of the police in the six months previous to us interviewing them. And these were some of the most marginalised people in our society, you know, like, you know, people who'd been through care system, people that had experienced multi-generation, like, violence, domestic violence, domestic abuse, uh, you know, sort of um, end-of-line drug users, a lot of the women on the street, and they were exposed, the, the policing exposed them to even greater levels of marginalisation. So you should, like, we're publishing and, you know, we're trying to get stuff, pu- you know, published as we speak, so, you know, keep an eye out for us because, you know, it's out there. Let me give you one more insight into me, you might say. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you were aware, but I'm an international expert on outlaw motorcycle gangs. <laughs> I, I can see that would be. <laughs> and I have done a lot of work, field work with with bikers and biker gangs. Mm-hmm. And 
I don't do it anymore because I tell people ask me, do you do biker research anymore? I tell them no. When you go to bed at nine o'clock at night, you don't do biker research anymore. But my, my idea was I want to get out there and see what the life was to see what the people involved in it. And that's what I've done. The same thing on this, you know, they're aggressors in blue the same. I've interviewed a lot of police officers. I've interviewed a lot of, uh, sex workers, though I never, I'm going to get into legal brothel too. <laughs> but uh, it's the idea. I want to explain it from their idea. And that's why I broke it down into 10 differences. So you cannot deal with it all as one basket. Okay. Okay. But is the, is the, but the uni system, the, the academic world, all they want is quants, isn't it? I mean, they're, they're not interested in ethnography. So I think as researchers, it's our, it's our duty to try and find ethnography around quantitative research. And, you know, again, with the London School of Hygiene, we're just writing an article of the eth- ethnographic study we were able to do when we were doing this quants research, because we were just out on the street all the time. So you become part of the furniture, especially if you've got a background that's similar to the people that you're interviewing. You can, you can, you can immerse to an extent. And that's what we've got to do as researchers. We've got to get imaginative because there's no money for ethnography, is there? They're not paying for ethnography. You know, they don't want that. They want some figures. They want, they want to crunch some figures and say, you know what, you can have your figures, but around that we're going to have to find a way to to find some, you know, some ethnographic research. But what I like about uh, quants, and I used to, I when people talk to, me, talk to me about quants, I used to think, you know what, the banality of evil is quants, yeah? Actually, it can be a really powerful tool. It can be a really powerful tool. That's right. It's, it's a, you know, you're looking for a window into their soul is what you're doing. Mm, yeah. And, and, you know, I get along with... Most everybody, you know, bikers, bad cops, good cops, sex workers, and everything. I ne- I've never looked down on anyone, and I, I always think that everybody's got a story, and everybody ought to have expressed their story and let them talk, let them tell you who they are and where they are. But you know, I've also got a pretty good bullshit detector too. <laughs> <laughs> it helps. <laughs> so, um. Uh, so, so, so tell us. So we're talking about this this very kind of hostile to 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 certain types of people environment that, that that's created by this type of marginalization. This kind of deliberate vul, you know, making certain types of people deliberately vulnerable. How does the book discuss mis- sexual misdemeanors towards female officers? Well, you know. I'm not sure I understand your question, Rachel. Well, I mean, I mean, it's sort of like if you've got a sort of like a largely male cohort of people that are abusing vulnerable people, um, you know, where where do the sort of female officers? How do they come into that? Is, is they, you know, do they experience a lot of uh, sexual crimes from other male officers, or you know, are oh, they? Oh, I see what you mean. Now, one of the things that we, you know, I found out. And so, you know, we can't treat sexual misconduct as only male on female. And we can't only treat sexual misconduct because, you know, as more women come into it, and we also, we've got more 
male on male. We have same sex and and within the departments, it it has uh, sexual harassment has become a real problem in some departments. But I I think that uh, there's one of the things that uh, I've seen it happen most is in the corrections officers. You know where the close confines in there. And there's been women on women, male on male, in in those confined situations. And it's also, you know, there there's there are still some officers that are stupid enough to try to harass a female co-worker and they're getting nailed pretty good, you know, I, especially since the Me Too movement, you know, you're not likely they're they're not likely to take it and just roll over. They they'll make so that it still exists, but not to the extent that it did. Okay, okay. So your book discusses a number of theories of why police commit sexual crimes. Okay, can you walk us through how the book discusses that? Well, actually, I start out from the idea of uh, you know it's occupational crime, mm-hmm. and you've got to be. It, and crime occurs generally, inclination, opportunity come together on a low, in a lower situation. So that's what I've I've tried to in in discussing sexual crime and the other, you know, the police caused homicides. Show when you get an officer that's inclined to do the act, and then he faces he comes together with the opportunity, and it's a low risk. And, and then you'll have the action occur. And you're going to find out that we also, uh, it, it becomes, a, and some go back here, actually a social learning situation. The police, when they come into the job, they learn from the group what is accepted police misconduct and what is forbidden misconduct. And in that learning process, they can learn, you know, here's what I can do and get away with. Here's what I can't do. Here's what, if I do it, I'm going to get, you know, in trouble. But if I do this, I'm not going to get in trouble. So it, it's it's a matter of, of uh, the opportunity and the learning process within the police peer group. And in fact, if you'll go back and if you'll look at uh, like the Me Too movement, you got that's the same thing, you know, the opportunity and the learning process. And I've often said that uh, you know, well, look at what happens in the, you know some of our religious organizations, and probably too the politicians are probably the worst in sexual misconduct. But I'm not going there. <laughs> <laughs> So what about, did I, did I see you mention something about rational choice theory in there as well? Russia? Rational choice. Did I see you mention something? Oh, yeah. Something? I, you know, I'm just, I'm one of those believe, right, you know, crime and everything's a matter of rational choice. Well, you know, we, we may, I'm not one of those that, I believe that, you know, that as, you know, we make the decision to do wrong. So somebody doesn't make it for us. I haven't seen very few people. We decide to do something, and we do it, and we can come up with rationalizations for just about everything. 
and mm. I always, you know, I guess being a former cop and also being Catholic, it's just, you know, avoid the near occasion of sin, the sisters used to tell me when they were beating my, my hands with the rulers. <laughs> it's, it's free will. <laughs> so bearing in mind your background as someone who's spent a lot of time studying police, yeah, who's a former police officer, what is your view about the current debate around the abolition of sex work? Well, we're going to have to come to, to grips with this situation, you know, and and realize that, you know, our, we, we shouldn't let our politicians force us into an idea that we can, we can criminalize sin and it's over. It's not over. And we're going to have to, let the politicians know that if you if you see that you're going to want to criminalize sin, you're going to create a problem for the police and enforcement. Think about that. And our current situation is the same thing. The more you make it illegal, the more problems you're going to create. Hmm. You're not going to crimi- you're not going to criminalize sin. There's another uh, sanctioning order for that. Yeah, it's quite it's quite interesting, isn't it? The way that the the it's interesting that you use the concept of sin because it's quite 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 an old fashioned concept, but actually, that kind of st- that shaming that goes on, is kind of the equivalent of a kind of um, like a casting out of a of of a sinning person, isn't it? That's you know, it. It's that create that creation creation of a sort of modern day sinner, and I I was thinking about um, uh, this uh, writer uh, back in the, the early two thousand. Sanchez, her name is, and she was talking about sex, uh, like certain types of sex workers are pushed out so far beyond the boundaries of of society that they never can come back come back come back in, you know. And it's almost like. Once they're past that boundary, once they're past that that sort of uh, that societal boundary, it's almost like they don't exist as societal members anymore. And actually, what you can do, to, you can do anything you want to them. You can sacrifice them. You can, you can, you know, you take away their voices and you use their body as the display, basically. And this is what we do. This is what happens. And especially around very vulnerable, the most vulnerable migrants, sex workers, this kind of casting out really ren- rem- sort of resonates with that, those those old ideas of sin, don't they? That's right. And, you know, one of the things that maybe are fault of just our human nature, we always need somebody to look down on, you know. I might have my problem, but look at them, you know. So we we create that thing. We, we create those people. So your book, like, comes up with some solutions to these 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 bad policemen, um, and it discusses proactive and reactive responses to police sexual misconduct. Can you talk us through this and give us some examples? Well, the proactive thing is, you know, one, the, the best proactive stance is for the police organization to say zero tolerance. You engage in this and we find you, you are going to be punished. And if we can, we're going to put you in the penitentiary. That is the that is the first proactive stance. And then also there needs to be an early warning system 
established where you keep an account of how many complaints this officer or that officer gets, how many, you know, and all the complaints may not be substantiated, but if you keep getting the same kinds of complaints from a, say, from women about an officer, you need to do something about it. You need to investigate. You have to have a reactive approach to it then. But first, your idea should be, let's, let's recognize we have the problem. Hmm. And then once we recognize we have the problem, we, we uh, set out to the organization, don't do this, because if you do this, we're going to nail you and, and mean it. So... I suppose it's a case also of acknowledging that if you're gonna if you're gonna introduce a police force, if you're gonna introduce any force that has like power over other people, that you have to be um, you know, open minded to the fact that actually you are likely to to attract a certain percentage of people that really shouldn't be doing that job. And be kind of open open to that idea that, you know, by virtue of the fact that, that, that this is the job that's on offer that some of the people that are going to be attracted to it are going to be criminal. Well, you know, Sir Robert Peel is probably, you know, in 1829, the British prime minister who introduced modern bank policing. Uh, and I put this in most of my books. <clears throat> he had a quote in there, what he said, if, if somebody applies for this job, you have to look on them as suspect. Because <laughs> there, you know, there are people that'll pay you to hire them as police officers because they they know what they can do. Yes, like print money. <laughs> you got to be wary of the person that applies. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you know, sort of, um, uh, the, I think it's like the anniversary to some investigation around like sort of police corruption around like um, Stoke Newington really recently, a really famous like uh, um, example of police corruption that was really endemic in London policing, you know, it was really, it was like, but oddly enough, there was never any mention about any sexual impropriety, but if you're doing everything else, why wouldn't you be doing that as well, you know? Um, so how would you describe your book? Who did you write it for? Who was your target audience? Well, I I was trying to, you know, I was trying to bring attention to a problem and, you know, let's deal with this as a problem. I was writing for a general audience and also an academic audience. Mm-hmm. I was trying to say, here is what, really happens. Read this book and you'll know that there is no BS in here. This is what really happens and I wouldn't tell you anything that, you know, and then here are the different types that happens. And again, you you can't, uh, don't accept the politicians or the police CEOs to say, well, it's just a few rotten apples. That's a lie and they know it. So, so I, I guess that's who I was writing for. I was, I was writing for somebody. If you want to know what sexual mis- police sexual misconduct is, read this book. I mean, there's no one out there out there. And uh, I got an ego, and I'll tell you, there's no one as qualified as I am to do it. I've been doing research on it for almost 
over 40 years. And like I tell people, they come up and they ask me, what do you do? And I tell them, I say, write about bad cops. And they say, let me tell you. I said, don't tell me about bad cops. I've talked to, known more bad cops than you could in your poor lifetime. That's what I'm telling you. You read that book, you'll know this is somebody that knows what he's talking about. Mm, yeah. And I got the impression as well, because in my head, and this is just in my head, it's not written anywhere, there are basically two forms of criminology, right? There's CSI and those of us who are in, know, like NWA criminology. And this felt like a kind of shout out to the CSI criminologists to say, look, there's something going on here. You need to hear this. Yeah, because the more critical criminologists, we know this. We might not have evidence, but we know it. We, you know, we, we, we you know, a lot of us critical criminologists come from a background, you know, that that we're critical of the police because we've been in contact with them so much, or, or you know, we can read it through the, you know, we get we pick up it through, you know, our research. But that's that's what I really uh, thought with this book was that actually, you know what. This is this needs to be spoken about and probably spoken about by the types of people that work within the criminal justice system that may 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 not be aware of how you know insidious this is. Well, I think everybody that uh, works in the system to read it, and I think you know that includes you know judges, law enforcement officers, corrections officers. They should all read this, anybody that deals with anyone who has been in the criminal justice system or possibly could be in it, and politicians could read it too, should read it, but they won't because they, they're they the ones that could deny it. It doesn't happen to us. <laughs> and also, anti-sex work campaigners should have this, I don't know, stapled to their foreheads so they can read it properly you know because your perception of the danger inherent to sex work is actually driving people into the the into the kind of remit of this really you know the these kind of like you know this criminal sort of uh you know not criminal organization but an organization that that does contain a percentage of criminals because of the type of organization it is um and like you said, even it's even like Robert Peel like acknowledges this. If you want to be, you know, there's there's issues, and these issues are sort of historically known. So, what did you learn from writing the book? What didn't? What do you know now that you didn't know before? Well, actually, and you know, it surprised me that I learned of all forms that exist that I hadn't I hadn't even thought about. And and let me tell you something that I, I learned about sex workers when I was a cop. You know, I told you I worked briefly in Vice. And I remember one night I, I made an arrangement with the uh, prostitute in the hotel. I went up there and got a room and was up. And she came in. And I looked at her. And I had arrested this woman two months before. And, you know, I thought she knew who it was. So I played along. And then I realized she doesn't remember me. And I said, why doesn't she remember me? And then I, it came to me. She was stoned. And I said, now, there, there, this is a woman that doesn't need to be arrested. She needs help, you know. And, and it gave me a, a new insight into people that do that kind of work. And 
So, you know, you could look at, rather than uh, criminalize it, maybe we should uh, look as to why they're doing it and if there's something that we could do to help them to stop them doing that, you know, or give them another job or, or you know, if that's what they want to do, make it as safe as we can for them rather than, you know, put them in jail. Or recognize that the fact that the, the people that come in contact with the police tend to be the most vulnerable people, but then the experiences of the most vulnerable are used to police everyone, and therefore you make you make other people that aren't vulnerable previously, you make them vulnerable by virtue of the fact that you've criminalised them. So, you know, sort of people that may not have been particularly vulnerable because, they, you know, they, they, they were working together or whatever, when you get this sort of criminalisation you make them vulnerable. You bring you 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 bring people into the criminal justice net and in doing so you don't protect, you make them vulnerable. You know, that's it's yeah. And that's why I, that's why you know what I have to be really honest, that's why I wanted to read your book and why I wanted to talk to you because it's kind of like it's a missing voice from an argument that we have all the time. You know, that kind of like that decrim, like abolition type argument that's been going backwards and forwards since the 1850s. And please, people, let's move this along. Yeah. But this is like an extra bit of evidence. Actually, you know what we we talk about, you know, we talk about some social actors in this this um this setup. So we talk about we talk about the sex workers, we talk about the clients, we talk about the third parties that profit or some of the third parties that profit. Um, we don't never talk about the banks, and they profit a lot from certain types of sex work. Yeah, But we never, ever talk about the role of the police as anything other than rescuer. And we need to be stepping away from that, you know? You know? Yeah. It's less Robin Hood than Robin the Hood, isn't it, you know? <laughs> I just thought of that one. So... Why? What? What do you have planned for future research? What are you doing next? Well, like I said, I finished it. I read, uh, wrote the second one about police perpetrated uh, homicides, trying to explain why why cops kill. And that, that book, I describe in that book, accidents to murder. You know, they kill accidentally, and then they also murder people. It's, and then the third book on it is. <clears throat> is liars, criminals, and criminal cops. And uh, if anything, liars is, you know, and one of the things that surprised me, and I didn't know this until just a few uh, months ago, the number of people who are incarcerated who didn't commit the crime. And, you know, and the, the result of a false confession or a police officer lying to convict them. Mm-hmm. And, so that's what I'm working on now. And, uh, Good work. It needs to be done. It needs yeah. to be done. Totally needs to be done. I can't. Well, like I said, I can't do biker research anymore. But I, <laughs> <laughs> do what you can. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. This is the part where you get to do a shameless plug for your book. So, who are you? What's your book, and who publishes it? All right, it's Aggressors in Blue. As you, as you can see, you know, exposing police sexual misconduct. And the publisher is Palgrave Macmillan, and, uh, you know, as that is Sweden. And uh, everybody should buy at least two books. <laughs> and what's your name? Tom Barker.
There you go, Tom. It's been a pleasure.